Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 683rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from our new place in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am here with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Welcome, welcome, everybody. It's fun to be here again. It is, man. We have been doing these for years, and I love that you're still willing to come and play because they're so much fun. So thank you. You're welcome. It's it's my honor and pleasure. So tonight, we're talking pollinators and wildflowers, and the description goes like this. A diverse and integrated garden requires many different elements. Top on that list are pollinators and wildflowers. If you have a robust flower component to your cultivated gardens, so much of the extra workload is handled by these workhorses or work flowers as they attract beneficial bugs and increase harvest. Tonight, we're talking about planting wildflowers and how they impact the beauty and functionality of your garden or farm and create healthy ecosystems that are balanced and regenerative. So welcome, Bill. And we're talking wildflowers. And I know it's in Seed School Online. It is our most popular class, the wildflower class. And I know you love talking about them and you've been doing that for years. Yeah. You know, it was not what I started out to do. But I got pulled into it. And, and I think that's because most of the people that really get the whole food issue, and by that I mean, you know, it's and the people that come to your podcast get yeah, that are even deeper into mm-hmm. it and the seeds that grow that food and where everything comes from. If you get into that, then you don't want the most chemical place in the world right outside your doorstep which is the American lawn, right? So people start thinking about, you know, alternatives to their landscapes and they want to be good earth citizens. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to blend with nature. And so how do you do that? So wildflowers become the, I don't know, it seems that's where people turn first. They go, oh my God, you know, I can plant something out there that's not just as beautiful, but more beautiful. And because they're wild, it'll be easy. Yeah. Right. All I have to do is throw stuff out there and it'll all take care of itself. Wow. What a great idea. And I've just spent about 35 years trying to tell people that it's not quite that simple. Yep. You know, that wildflowers bring their own set of things you need to learn mm-hmm. Life. You to them into their into your yard and so that's what I, we can talk about tonight and for the people that are listening especially to get the most out of this ask questions about what's happened to you that you don't understand along these lines and maybe i can help you i got a job one time as a consultant for a large subdivision and i listened to them and they wanted native landscape with lots of wildflowers they wanted to do it right and i like that you know i want to do it right too right And so I finally took the job when I convinced the principal who was hiring me of one thing. I said, well, Jim, you got to accept this fact then. And he goes, what's that? And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And he goes, but we're hiring you because you're the expert. You know, everybody, (laughs) you know, pointed at you. And I said, well, they're pointing my direction because I've been doing it for 25 years in this area. 
you know, and so a lot of people heard about me, but I, I'm just being honest. I really still don't know how to do this. And by that is like nail it, you know, to choose what to plant in any given area, right, when right. to plant it, how to grow it up, get it to come up and have it be really low maintenance and fulfill everyone's expectations. I just never got to that point. And so I said, Jim, what I do have is 25 years of what not to do. Because <laughs> I made all those mistakes. Right. You know, so I'm willing to bring that on board. If you're willing to hire me for that, then that's then we got a deal. And that's what I'm saying to everybody tonight. I may have made a few more mistakes than you have. And so if I can help you with those, then let me know, you know, and then we can just start from there. Well, so I have a question right off the bat then. Oh, yeah, good. <laughs> Where do we get wildflowers? For our area, because I was recently in a big box store wandering through their nursery area and they had a wildflower in a box, essentially. Yeah. And the first thought I had was, oh my gosh, are those appropriate for the area here? <laughs> right. You know, if it had, we have this thing called globe chamomile in Phoenix that is just. It's an invasive species that is just taking over and, and then it's high in oil. So when it dries up in May and June, it's highly flammable. And, you know, it's like, how, how do we source flowers that are appropriate for our area and not invasive? Because you don't want to buy one of those cans. No, that's okay. probably Norm Thompson was a company, mail order company that did meadow in a can. Yeah you know, 20 years ago or so. And when it came out, it was the best selling mail order product in America that year. Wow. And what it's doing is feeding off this idea that I just talked about. People want to do the right thing mm -hmm. and they don't know what to do. So they get caught up with this idea of wildflowers and they go right on the can. It said, all you have to do is sprinkle this out there and it will take care of itself forever, giving you beautiful rainbows of colors, you know? And then the next, you know, up two years later, they changed the wording on the can. I was like trying to study this stuff. And it said, oh, well, this won't give you unending rainbows of color without doing anything, but we suggest that you start to do these things. And so they were selling a product based on the failure of their first product. Oh, we you know, it's That's like basically what you just said. Yeah. Consulting yeah, with that guy. They were acknowledging that the first product didn't work, but now we've got the product that and it didn't work and they still don't work. So here's the problem. There's only about one tenth of a percent of the actual wildflower or native forb seed available that people would and could and should buy if they were educated at all. Mm -hmm. It's just not available. And there's a reason for this. It's really hard to grow them. And it's almost impossible to grow them commercially. And the reason is the seed laws that have been set up around noxious weeds. And some of the wildflowers in a can, just to emphasize your point, are noxious weeds in right. other places. Yeah. In fact, they've, you know, when I did research, 13 states had noxious weed problems because of aforementioned product that yeah. had flowers that were okay in most states, but they took them into their state. And it became a noxious weed. And not, the definition of noxious weed is that it causes economic damage to agriculture. So it got oh, into interesting. and caused a lot of problems. And states have laws against that and you can't do it. And so, yeah, it's a real problem. And so in order to keep any noxious weeds from being in a product that, that contains wildflower seeds or native grass seeds, they have zero tolerance for any other kinds of seeds. You have to send it into a state seed lab and get it p to look to make sure it's pure. And if they find one seed in a ton of the wildflower seed you've grown, it's gone. You can't sell it. So in order to assure that, it's herbicide city. It's the most dangerous chemical oh, part of agriculture gosh. there is because you don't get a, all their money's tied up in it. Right. So what you're growing, what you're getting from this meadow in a can is a, a dozen to two dozen so-called wildflowers that are almost not found wild anywhere in the United States mm -hmm. or in very few places that happen to be easy to commercially grow. Things like California poppies. They're, obviously, they're native in California, but not you don't see huge amounts of them except during the super blooms. 
but California poppies and desert bluebells and bishop's flower. There's just a number of these things that large commercial growers have figured out that they can grow. So they make them available in large enough quantities. So people like Norm Thompson are just mail order people. They have no idea. They've never grown a thing in their life, can buy thousands of pounds and put it into cans and make up stuff to sell. And so that's what you're getting. If you walk into a big box and buy one of those, that's mm -hmm. what you're getting. Wildflowers actually can either be noxious weeds or the ones you probably want are just difficult to grow and haven't come through a nursery or a commercial production system. So those are the ones, just to answer your question, long, sorry, long answer. Yeah, um, well, I, I'm used to it with the, you. That's all good. The, to get the wildflower seeds that you would want that would be beneficial, that would help you where you are, mm -hmm. you're going to have to gather them on all the walks you take learning the Smoky Mountains and all over. And when you're in the fall and you see things, start grabbing little bags. You don't have to label them. You don't have to know what they are even. You can bring them home and start planting them. And then later someday, if they work, you, then you can ID them if you want to. So don't make it this overwhelming. Oh my God, I got to keep things straight and I got to know what I'm doing. No, just bring seeds. Have an area of your yard and bring all the seeds that you can every time you go out and bring them home and do that over a number of years. And you'll learn enough and they'll start the ones that work, will work, will work. And you can start moving them around your yard and pretty soon you'll be okay. That's the nice. easy, cheapest and best way to do this. Sorry, there's no, there's no shortcut. Got it. <laughs> Well, Cindy said, join your state or and local native garden society. That you know, I've never seen a garden society. There are native plant societies. Oh, maybe okay, good. Maybe native plant society. And okay. and they're really great people. And do join it, and you can yes. learn a lot about the plant life. Except, not one of the people in the Idaho Native Plant Society. Well, it, until later in the few years, and I can give some counterexamples now, but very few of those people have ever grown. And almost none of them had collected seeds for commercial production or production in their own yards. It was only to make sure that they wouldn't disappear someday. So the sort of landscape community is different than the Native Plant Society, but go in there and change that. Be right. the plant guy. They used to beat up me on me all the time. Why are you growing this stuff? You know, right? Tasker of Puppets wants to know any idea if honeysuckle is considered a, a noxious weed in some states. Well, every state has a noxious weed list. Ah, so just put noxious weed list Arkansas, noxious ah. weed list Louisiana. Find out what it is and pull it up. And a lot of states now not only have a noxious weed list or a most restricted. In other words, those things you can never legally plant uh -huh. in, your, in your yard in that state. But they'll have less restrictive. In other words, a list of things they do not recommend. Be real careful with. And so you may get into one or two or three different kinds of lists, but you can find them now. And that's the best answer. Another, another hint Find out what the Latin name is for oh, yes. your honeysuckle. Honeysuckle is a common name used all over the world for probably a half a dozen different common plants. Mm -hmm. So I can't answer your question because I don't know which one you're talking about. So I just did that search, noxious weed list for North Carolina. I'm, I'm pretty clear about what it is for Arizona. Right. But for North Carolina and interesting, the website that came up was invasive.org. Okay. It may be like a spinoff, you know, from the state yeah. or whatever. And, and lots of times that's volunteers from the Native Plant Society. Mm -hmm. So that's good. You know, and then there's the cooperative extension gardening.ces.ncsu.edu, which is the right. North Carolina Cooperative Extension. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, when, back in the day when I was doing this, no internet. Can you imagine? I was shipping seeds to people all over the country and I didn't know what their lists were, you know? And I would get calls from angry state officials saying, you just shipped a noxious weed. Oh, really? Into our state. And that's illegal. And I, and I went, wow, it's not illegal in my state. How would I know? Yeah. And so now I don't have that excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's see. John says... Or Wanda says, in Alberta, various communities have horticultural societies. Good. Right. John says, I live in a zone five near Verona, Illinois. I bought close to 50 different seed packets of, of plants native to Illinois last fall from Prairie New Moon Nursery. Right. I put them outside in milk jugs filled with 
potting soil last fall. A vast majority of the seeds have germinated. I need to get them transplanted in the next couple of weeks. That's cool. Well, so a couple of things. One is that I'm a big believer now in not like freaking out or stressing out over gardening. So when I hear people say, I have to by mm -hmm. next week, I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, yeah. it may be that that's the only way to save them all if it gets real hot and you're not around to water or whatever, but go easy on yourself, right? you know, and starting experiments with 50 different plants is a big experiment, <laughs> right? So, you know, some of it, I would say some of it's bound to go wrong and that's okay too. You know, you're doing your best and. Well, you know, in the podcast, when I interview people, I, one of the questions I ask is tell me about a time you failed because yeah. that's how we learn. Yeah. That's why we do experiments. Well, and there are more and more nurseries and seed sources from other people that are collecting seeds in areas. It's become sort of a cottage industry. Some mm -hmm. of the people that were in the medicinal herbs, you know, part, some of those people do it now. And so you can look around and maybe you can find somebody that's got seeds and you can do, you know, what John did. And that's really a great thing, you know, and planting them in the fall. That's another really great idea for mm. seeds, especially in the northern half of the United States, the northern latitudes, because of they get snow in the winter and the, lots of seeds to the natives there won't germinate unless they go through a cold period. So you could get them now and plant them, but they wouldn't germinate, excuse me, until they went through next winter. Got it. And they would be okay. So that was really smart. And I'm sure the information came from Prairie Moon. You know, there's lots of really great people. Yeah. Well, and yeah. one of the things I've noticed here in Asheville is there's local seed growers mm -hmm. and local, there's so true seeds. Yeah. There's a right. employee owned seed company that started right. a few years ago. Right. And I actually got their information the other day from them on growing for them, hmm. growing seeds well, that's for right. them. You should trade then if they've got any of the native plants. Right. You go, see? Yeah, yeah. But so, they don't have enough to sell in a big box yet. Right. That was my original point. This is still a pretty, you know, small and localized thing. But yeah, go for it. I think that's great. And learn what all, about their 25 years worth of mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I would be down there asking questions. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely interesting here. TJ, and I think you just answered this question. TJ says, if you live in a four season climate, the native plant seeds need to have a cold exposure over the winter in order to germinate in the spring. And that's definitely it. It, it depends. It depends. On the plant. Simple question, a complicated answers. Mm -hmm. Do you know why that is that some plants need to? No, tell me. Well, you know, in most areas of the country and in Idaho, where I grew up, it happened almost every year. We would get a cold early storm, even snow, mm -hmm. sometimes as early as September, October. And then a couple of weeks later, here comes the high pressure again. And we called it Indian summer, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. sometimes that would last four to six weeks. So if you're a little wildflower seed, and you've grown up in the summer and you fell off in the fall in August, September sometime, you're laying there on the ground. You don't have a calendar. Right. And you don't have a little window to look out. You know, all you know is it's cold and snowy, right? Winter. And so as soon as Indian summer comes, you germinate and whammo, winter gets you. You're yeah. dead, right? So all the seeds that did that over thousands, if not millions of years are gone. And only those that laid around and went through a real winter uh, that were patient very enough good. for yeah. some genetic, you know, anomaly reason are the ones that we're left with today. They've, they're just patient and wise. Got and it. so, and, you know, you, there used to be a book that was available. It's called Germinating the Seeds of Wildland Plants. Mm. A couple who they were PhD botany and they got all of the extant literature from around the world for all the flowering plants they could find that needed to be stratified and wrote down all the stories. And it's a fascinating, if you ever want to get into it, you could spend your whole life doing this. What's all the book the called? I think it's called Germinating the Seeds of Wildland Plants. It may, it was a hardback and it may still be around, I think. And, and I may not have the title exactly right. I'll try to find. Collecting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Collecting, processing, germinating the seeds of wildland plants. There you go. So anyway, they didn't do, they did some themselves, 
But the book isn't about their personal experience. For me, it would have been a better book if they'd gone through. And of course, they couldn't, you know, but because they talked about hundreds, if not thousands of plants. Yeah. But but you get an idea of what people have learned to do to get things to germinate. You know, example, take a tablespoon of wild lupin seeds, put it in a teacup, make tea, get your teapot water and pour it boiling water over the lupin seeds in the teacup. Allow the seeds to cool and then plant them. Really? Yeah. That will break dormancy in some varieties of lupin. And that's part of this wow. folk. You know, there it, it gets way wackier and weirder than that. But I'm not so sure that a lot of it doesn't work. You know, people, this is, they came out of their experience. People have been desperate. People have, we're creative. We love, you know, figure out how to do stuff. And so just to say that seeds need to be stratified, the word stratification came from the forestry industry mm -hmm. when they were trying to do tree seeds in large scale at nurseries after the great forest fires burned through the 20s and the 30s and we had to repopulate the western forests and they they're the ones who figured that out and that the word stratified comes because they used to layer seeds in between damp cloth or a sphagnum uh, moss and other mm -hmm. things and then chill them that way and so somebody said what so what are you doing to all those seeds well you know they're all stratified with this stuff and we're keeping them cold and so that came to mean keeping them cold Mm -hmm. I'm throwing out some language here because you're going to run into this if you try to get into this too deep. Right. TJ says, is seed germination more dependent on temperature than on length of day then? It depends. Well, it depends on the seed, right? Well, let me tell you one of my stories is I got a contract to grow this Colorado columbine and somebody wanted plants. It was a local nursery. And mm -hmm. I had tons of seed that was fresh collected by Dean Swift. He's this old master who had wandered around in the forest in Colorado for years, hand gathering seeds. And then he got into commercially growing some and contracting them. And so I had that seed and I stratified it in the way I knew how I put it with damp compost in a mm -hmm. plastic bag and poked holes in the plastic bag. And I threw it in the back of my refrigerator for three months. Generally, you want to do that the amount of time that that plant would be under the snow uh, okay. where the seeds were gathered. Okay. These are rules of thumb that I've heard and worked with in my career, whether they work for you or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I got, I had like 20 or 30 trays flats of these things. I, I bring the seed out just in time. We get it all planted. Everything's going and nothing. Germinated. Oh, nothing germinated ever. Or nothing germinated in 30 days or. Was well, I, you know, I'm an operation. I've got tomato plants. I'm selling seeds. There's all this stuff going. I waited as long as I could. I waited about six weeks, eight weeks and nothing mm. came up. So I said, get them out of here. And I had an employee at the time who didn't really understand what I meant. So they just took him out and kind of tossed him in the alley behind the seed company, <laughs> um, which was a north-sided shaded area. Yep. And damned if I didn't go out there about five or six days later and everything, it germinated. Wow. Every, every, you know, I lost half of them because they were tipped over and they're falling out or whatever, but I did salvage some. And so I did research and the reason they germinated wasn't because of the cold treatment. It was because in the alley, it got warm in the days and then it got cold at night and then it got warm in the day and then it got cold at night. And it was that warm, cold, warm, cold, warm, cold that made them germinate. Yeah. Well, this gets complicated. Tasker of Puppets says, does that mean weeds are the wisest? Weeds uh -huh. are weeds are pioneer species. We learned yep. that in, in uh, permaculture. Yep, yep. They're the first ones in after any soil is disturbed. They're deep mining minerals. Lots of times if they're lupins or they have, they're leguminous, they're fixing nitrogen, they're readying the soil for the secondary plants to come in that are more stable and long lasting. Uh -huh. And that's a big myth in wildflowers and stuff is that people, you know, when they're trying to restore a native landscape, will take a careful inventory of every plant that was on their property. Mm -hmm. They'll destroy it, build their house or whatever. And then they go out and buy seeds to put everything back. Uh. It's not going to work. Why? Because there's been no succession to get the soil ready for yeah, those yeah. secondary or those other plants. And so, yeah, weeds are the best at covering disturbed soil. And that's the real secret. If you want to have fun with wildflowers, 
what you want to do is find pioneer species of wildflowers that are not noxious in your area. Yeah. Usually if you do some research, you can get a list of those. They just grow up, give you beauty for the year, and then they disappear, right? And But they're easy to plant, and the seeds to some of those are available to almost every area of the country. And you can design rainbows. You can. I had a French landscape friend, Pierre, who used to paint with them. He would do these French landscapes and do the white here and the blue here. Bill, Bill, I need my seeds. The moon is in Libra. You know. It was just... <laughs> so I keep I keep giggling here. TJ said sent over a couple of comments here. Weeds are wiser than some humans I know. I laughed about that one. Then I really right. laughed about that this one. Yes, weeds by any other name are flowers. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know that's pretty pretty rough. If you're dividing the word world into weeds and flowers, because it's way more complicated and interesting. Right. Than that. Well, I've, I've sure, noticed. Go ahead. I'm sure we could all find flowers that are actually weedy and weeds that are, we would enjoy it as flowers. And so yeah. I guess it's up to us to find those. Yeah. So this is behind me. For those of you that are on the live uh, event, you can see the picture of my front yard. It looks like a lawn. It's actually a pasture. We do mow the pasture, and one of the striking things about this pasture is the amount and the biodiversity of weed, and I use that word lightly, flowers that are in amongst yeah. it. In amongst it. Wild strawberries. Of course. Uh, right? Clover, several different kinds of... It's so funny. My neighbor in Phoenix used to have this beautiful clover growing in their front yard right next door. And I used to, I got their permission and I used to go harvest the seeds from those and put them in my front yard and they never germinated in my front yard. It was so interesting, but it thrived in their front yard a mere 75 feet away. And so, you know, it's, it's been interesting to see the different weed flowers that are growing in the pasture in my front yard. You finally got your clover. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Cindy, what you wish for. Right. Cindy says calscape.org in California. C-A-L-S-C-A-P-E. Calscape.org. Don't know what I, that I'm is. I'm not but. familiar with that, but I'm getting old. And But they're yeah, bless human beings. Where there's a need, there'll be people that spring up and create yeah. organizations and try to teach the people behind them how to do things that they've learned not to do, you know. Right. Or to, Take, TJ says, you want good diversity of plants in pasture lands. Each one provides a different nutrient and medicinal need for the animals that graze there. Yes. Bio, big biodiversity. I have an idea. Why don't we all give some of our private land to big common open areas? Let those go back and be totally wild mm-hmm. and take care of themselves. And then study real carefully how much we could put grazing animals in there to help it with its biodiversity instead of hurting it. Yeah. And then we wouldn't have to plant anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Because a lot of those. So here's an interesting story. This is how I learned early on about Bermuda grass and horse manure. So we had this next to the driveway at the urban farm. We had this patch of dirt when I moved in that was about 10 feet wide and about 40 feet long. And I couldn't ever get anything to grow there. So one year I was going to plant squash in the area and I went and I got horse manure. I got a couple of truckle loads of horse manure and I just spread it liberally there and I watered it and I planted and the squash did great. Right. But, (laughs) and, (laughs) but, and exactly in the horse manure, they were feeding them Bermuda hay. Oh, there you go. So it was full of Bermuda seeds. And so the next season I actually had a really nice lawn in that part of the yard. Inadvertently. Inadvertently, exactly. You know, one of the other things that happens to a lot of people that want to have wildflowers, the next the next thought that many people have is, oh, I'm going to have to bring in topsoil. Right. And bringing in topsoil is like bringing in your manure. I've never seen topsoil brought in that didn't have weed seed in it. It's like, no. You know, and before we came on tonight, we were talking about sheet mulching. Oh, if yes. you have a pasture like Greg's and you want to transition it to wildflowers, you know, cardboard or other light barrier, and then put soil and compost over the top of that, mm-hmm. and then plant directly into that. That the soil structure of your yard out there is so, mm, it's delicious. Yeah. Right? 
Well, and it's it's interesting. It's very dense clay. Underneath. Underneath, yeah. Maybe that all that will ever grow there is what you have. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe exactly. people knew what they were doing. All right. Tasker of Puppets says, for years I put my vegetable seeds that I didn't use the season before in my freezer, and then in the spring I take them out and let them thaw, thaw slowly and plant them. I do use this with sugar snap, tomatoes, kale, lettuce, corn, and have decent success, about 80%. Is this a smart way to store my seeds? I'm still using seeds from 2016-17. Yeah. Well, you know, it works, obviously. Yeah. And if it works for you, it's not necessary, though. If you keep your seeds below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, they'll last for years anyway. Yeah. So if that's easier for you, you just don't want to get them above, you know, room temp. And you want to keep them dry, cool, dark, and dry. Exactly. And if you are going to put them in a freezer, they need to go in a sealed jar. Yeah. That's, there's a danger when you're around freezers, you're going to get moisture. The plastic bags will allow the moisture in. You know, we've yeah. all seen that with old, you know, something in the freezer and it's just filled with all. Where did all that come from? Well, guess. So you want to be a little bit. The other danger is that even if you put them in a sealed jar and you bring them out and you don't let them warm up slowly, that jar, and you just open it up when it's frozen, all the air in your house will go into that jar and condense on the insides and then you'll get them wet that way. Yeah. So it's a little complicated, but obviously freezing works. You know, all the bio, biological science about why isn't in yet. Nobody knows definitively right. how to store seeds for long periods of time. Yeah. There's a lot of multi-million dollar experiments out there, you know. But if you want them to last for 600 years, we know how to do that. Put them in a clay jar and keep them like, you know, in your basement and you'll be fine. Yeah. Let's see here. TJ says regenerative agriculture movement is basically doing that for grazing animals, growing native wild grasses and flowers for animals to graze on. Thank you. Gotta, gotta love it. Laura wants to know what's the best way to eliminate spotted knapweed, not a dense stand, just sporadic from the areas that I want to repopulate with natives. Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I know how to do that. The bad news is you've got to go out and pull every, every single, single plant up. Yeah. In Western Montana, when I was a student there, they went to war on spotted knapweed and tried everything they could. And they ended up spraying herbicides over 25 million acres for 25 uh. years and then went back and there was more knapweed. <laughs> when they started. It just didn't work. And, almost, and I tried to mow it one time. And my father had a place in Idaho and I thought, well, I'll just mow it in this pasture grass while I'll compete it, which pasture grass will outcompete every other plant I've ever been around. But I, all I did was create this really diminutive variety of knapweed that would flower at two inches tall. I mean, I never did get rid of it. It just kept it really low. So John Kasha and I, he was one of the co-founders of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance with me. He and I took on a bike path in our hometown. And we organized the community to come out every Wednesday night with our forks and our little diggers. And we started, we talked them into not spraying herbicides anymore because all that stuff is nasty. Yeah. None of those are worth being around, my opinion. And we started pulling it up and you can actually get ahead of it with a community. And so, you know, that's my, that's my only suggestion. Yeah. Go out and dig it up. There's a really cool tool out there. It is a vinyl flooring cutting tool. It's about six inches long. It's got a handle on it that you can hold in your hand and it's got about a two and a half inch curved blade on the end. Wow. Yeah. I, it's there a cool go. tool. And what I do with that is I grab the weed and I take that tool and just go about a half inch under the ground, right. slice it off at the root. Right. I just killed the weed. Can't right. do this for Bermuda grass right. uh, or other invasive grasses, but I just killed the weed left the root in the ground to compost and right. yeah and don't throw away that weed because it's nutrient dense weeds you said this earlier weeds are pioneer species they're right. doing the heavy digging they're right. extracting nutrients so that is a nutrient dense treat for your chickens or your compost bin yeah the the most successful knapweed project that i saw in western montana was these guys who came out of college and they go well if you can't beat it burn it and so they got, they jimmied up their father's hay baler. 
Uh-huh. And they cut and baled it and they would sell it as firewood, you know, to to burn in wood stoves. Wow. I mean, because so napweed's allopathic. It starts secreting stuff in the soil that mm-hmm. will keep the other anything else from growing. And oh, left right. alone, it will completely sterilize an area and it'll only be napweed. It's really smart that way. Interesting. It's kind of pretty. It's very, it it's like- well, it's a bachelor's button. It's a centuria. It looks maybe thistle-like. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, thistles are in that same. They're mm-hmm. in the sunflower family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really pretty. So TJ says there is a book, Foods Not Lawns. And thank you, Heather, for putting that book out. Yeah. Uh, talks about converting grass yards into flowers and vegetable gardens. There you go. Urban yards really didn't exist until after World War II. A big push for grassy yards largely resulted from marketing of chemical companies that needed a new market for the products that they, the bombs that they had that they turned into fertilizer after the war. Yeah. Hey, we're smart. We can make money on this stuff. We'll just kill people in Amer- in their own front yards. We don't there have to. Laura says, thanks for the napweed answer, Bill. I've been hand pulling it and covering the area with thick woody wood chip mulch for the last three years. Working pretty good so far. Well, and if you figure out something better, let me know. You know, I don't, I, again, I've, that's just the best that I've been able to figure out. And so that's my poor meek answer. Yeah. So a couple things before we sign off, we are still doing Seed School Online. So if yes. you're interested in taking a deep dive into learning how to save seeds, seedschoolonline.org. I think that's the address for that. And th- did you have something to say about that? Well, it's just the best version out there. Mm-hmm. And why is that? <laughs> well, I, you know, for some reason, I, I, I think I was at my peak. Now that I'm 67 and I'm going on and doing other things, I, it's just hard for me to do it that well. And so I really, those have become real treasures to me and it's held up, Yeah, you know, before I did those, I had 25 or 30 years experience teaching about seeds and started with a 10 day course. And then we condensed that down to a six day course, six day seed schools did, I don't know, you know, we have thousands of graduates and then started doing seed school in a day. Oh yes. Because somebody dreamed that up. It wasn't my idea. Did a bunch of those. And then we went to Seed School Online. So all the best of all that experience or whatever, you know, we were forced to get down and figure out what are the most important things? What are the essentials that you will have to have to go from zero to 60 in the seed world? You know, it doesn't give you all the information, but you can find it all if you have a, a path. And you understand what is most right. important about it. And that's what that class does. So, and we've had people do that course and start seed co- companies. So, yeah. well, and we've been doing it online since 2013. Yeah, something like that. I that's what you I, was... and, I think you and me and Bell and Toby Hemingway right. got right. together in Prescott in 2012 right. and talked right. about putting this stuff online. Yeah. So it's seedschoolonline.com. Thank you. Seedschoolonline.com. Annette says, I live in Western Washington. I came from, I just came from a big box store trying to pick up some seeds for a friend who wants to start gardening. The clerk had pulled almost all the seeds, said vendor told them out of season. Is there something to be worried about? Restriction of seeds? (laughs) No, you're just talking about a massively centralized system that has the same seeds in Western Washington in their big box as they do in Florida as they do in Montana, as they do in Vermont. And so they probably are reacting to complaints from customers who bring them back. And if you're talking about Costco, you know, they they give a refund for everything you return. So if enough people do that, they stop doing it. They quickly start to figure it out. So I don't know. I have no idea what box you're with or whatever. We do have to uh, worry about restriction of seeds. I mean, the um, a centralization of the seed industry is continuing. Mm-hmm. Fewer and fewer, you know, it's monopoly, late stage monopoly. And they these guys are clamping down. They have tremendous political and economic power. The current Secretary of Agriculture in the United States is a former Monsanto attorney. Wow. And so they see the world through a lens where they will react to any and all fears about what's going on in the, wor- the world, whether it's supply line issues, whether it's chemicals, whatever it is, through the lens of how do we make more money and control that process? 
And for me, that means, yeah, look out for more restrictions around seeds. We're, we're about to enter into a really interesting period, I think. And, you know, creeping in underneath an organic seed are, is patenting, plant patenting, mm. which ends seed saving, which for me ends gardening, right? When I figured out more than 40% of the lettuce seeds in the current Johnny's Selected Seed Catalog, and these are organic seeds, are patented. Oh my God. First time in human history, you can no longer save your own seeds. Yeah. And we're talking lettuce seeds, which are open pollinated and easy to save. Mm. All right. So they're not even going to tell you about the restrictions and the things that are coming. In fact, they're hiding it. They're trying to. No, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. Let's not rock the boat. We're in a big tent here. You can't threaten people, Bill. Yeah. Well, and Peggy says, did you hear that the Russian army burnt down a seed bank in the Ukraine? I did not hear that. Not well, surprising. That's, it would be surprising if they didn't. Yeah, exactly. That's we, expected behavior. We blew up the seed bank in Baghdad when we invaded mm -hmm. Iraq. We paid the Contras to blow up the seed bank in Nicaragua. Reagan yeah. did and his people. So that's why, and I'll just, this is my soapbox, grow and save your own seeds and share Amen. them. Yeah. And share them with everyone around you and get as many of them as you can. And through that process, get a seed library, a seed exchange as quickly as you can. Get as much diversity into your system and find a way to grow and share them among the people that you know. And you will be one of the wealthiest communities there is. That's just yeah. my off that we were talking about being out in front. That's my prediction. In 20 yeah. years, when global trade is down and the big boxes don't have seeds, or there's restrictions on what you can grow and share, the communities that got ahead of that and have their own seeds are going to be way ahead of the curve. Yeah. That's part of the awesomeness of Asheville is the amount of people that are actually growing seed here. Yes. It's so, so rewarding to be around people that get it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And exactly. you know, and and what are we talking about? We're talking about something that every human community's done for the last 10,000 years, except for the last generation in America. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. And we create these corporations that are now dominating and ending seed saving all over the world. It's just, you know, we had to go through it before we figured out it was a mess. Yeah. And now it's up to us to do it. But nobody's coming to save us. Nobody's going to save the seeds. All the seed banks are going to be targets or controlled by someone else. And so if you want seeds and free and open and sharing and whatever, get that system set up right now. Amen to that. TJ says, if you control the seed, you control the food. If you yep. control the food, you control the people. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel Quinn wrote a book called Ishmael. Talked about, he talks a lot about locking up the food. Yeah. You know, in the past 100 years, we've locked up the food. Right. And our gig, I know for you, Bill, and for me, it's really... The most important thing that you can be doing right now, period, end of story, is learning where our food comes from and learning how to grow our own, right. which includes seed saving. The breadbasket of the United States and Canada, and one could argue then much of our wealth and our power as empower, mm -hmm. empires came from Ukrainian wheat varieties ah. that were brought here by immigrants. Interesting. Before there was a wall. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> TJ, we, we are immensely in debt to you. Right. TJ says, are there any promo codes for Seed School? Yes. I don't have it off of the top of my head. Seed School, the page I sent you guys to, it's $197. We do have a code. You'll need to email me. Email greg at urbanfarm.org. And I can get you into, we, we recently put together a three-part mini-series that you can take, and then it goes into an, a discounted version of Seed School. So just send me an email, TJ, and I can get that for you. Let's see here. T says, a task of puppets says, excellent points, Bill. Uh, and then he goes on to say, Asheville is kind of a hippie town in the Tar, Tar Heel State. Yep, I'm finding that. It is, and it's cool. Remember so, back when America was a hippie country, <laughs> right? So to speak, with these well, long-haired weirdos like Benjamin Franklin running well, around inventing new things. <laughs> right. Well, and really the hippie part is grow your own food. Yeah. Bottom line, all we preach about here at Urban Farm U is grow your own food. 
Well, and all we talk about at our New Heritage Grain Alliance is that growing and saving and sharing your own grain seeds on a small scale in your own yard may be the most important thing that anyone in your family's history has done at this juncture. That's 70% of what we eat is based on grain. And we have and we have a great local food movement now and restaurants and, yeah. and organic food and all this stuff, but no grain. And grain is what, 70% of our diet or 50%, something, something crazy. Well, like once that. you feed it to animals and you figure mm. that in, you know, so, yeah. so, and it's so cool to get into the einkorns and the emmers and the spelts and learn the stories and where they came from. And Ukrainian immigrants came to the Midwestern United States. They were Mennonites. They were escaping religious persecution. Mm-hmm. They started growing their wheat and it was working better than anything anybody'd ever heard. And nice. a guy heard about it from, he was actually Ukrainian. He was hired by the Canadian Wheat Board to go down there and check that out. And he did. And he ended up buying a railroad car full of seed from these people and taking it into Canada in 1906. Wow. And by 1913, there were 6 million bushels of wheat being grown in Canada, all of the seed having come out of that one car. Wow. So whatever you think about it being small and boutique in your backyard, we are not going to be able to scale up and feed people ever unless we have the seeds. And that's what I, so grow and save and share your own. Save. We're just keep hitting this drum, you know, please, please do it for you, for your community, for the people around you and, and do it quickly. And do it quickly. People are buying open pollinated and heirloom seeds. That's where we primarily want to be. Guess what I discovered the other day, Greg? Tell me. All of the grains are open pollinated and self pollinating. So you don't have to worry about them crossing it's just like this beginning gardener's dream i wonder who figured that out right all right cool we're gonna i got tj said one more thing that i have to read this is this is it and then i got one more thing and then we gotta go all right tj says the industrial agriculture methods used have depleted soil amen to that the food is thus nutrient depleted uh yeah so not only do we need to save our own seeds we also need to grow soil the united nations agricultural Report estimates that we have less than 60 years left of topsoil to grow in due to the depletion of soil. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, Um, while you're doing that, take your depleted soil, get as many different kinds of grains. And the USDA is starting to do Grexes for us where we can get a thousand different varieties. They've got like 300,000 varieties of wheat. So we get a thousand varieties that are tuned to your area, mix them all up in a bag, throw it out on that's What's called that? grex. That's called grexing, right? Right, and throw it out over your field and see which ones work. And so, and meet it halfway. So while you're building your soil, you're also finding the plants that grow well in depleted soil, right? Which is actually quicker, so that we don't have any starving people. That's just an idea. Yeah, yeah, we won't go down that one. The starving people. We we have a food system that is broken. And we have to figure out how to grow our own food because the excitement that we saw in COVID is just the beginning, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right, I what? think, you know, and guess what? If nothing ever changes and they figure out how to, we get our energy machine and, and our soil builder machines and we never hit that 60-year wall, guess what? It's the most fun, yep. healthy, community-building thing I've ever done anyway. I mean, yep. it's just like there's no reason not to do it. Right. Amen to that. So every month we do a seed chat just like this, and we do four episodes of the Urban Farm Podcast. Some months we do five or six episodes of the Urban Farm Podcast. And next Tuesday evening, we do our monthly garden chat. And so I just really want to give you guys an opportunity because we do all this for free for you. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to take a look at supporting the work that we do here. So if you go to urbanfarm.org forward slash patron, we have recently set up a patron program that you can donate at different levels. And we're not just asking you to give us money. With each one of the levels comes a, a bunch of content. So you're able to listen to more podcasts. You're able to watch more classes. And so if you would jump over there, I just put the link in the 
chat box that is urbanfarm.org forward slash patron. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us tonight. Always love chatting with you. Can I, can I share a picture here at the end? You can, but the people on the podcast won't be able to see it. But just as, as a going out, I'd love to share a picture to just to show. Oh, yes. There, that's growing grains. To, yeah. uh, Thousand-year-old Tibetan uh, purple barley, Harani, which was talked about in the Old Testament, an einkorn that is, you know, 14,000 years old. I mean, this is growing grain. So I just wanted to show everything. And so what the picture is, is it's you standing in your in your backyard right. at Cornville Seed. And right. it's got you got four rows of grains that are growing. And you're just growing, what, 20-foot-long rows of grain? I'm growing, yeah, actually, I'm only growing five or six foot rows this year because I'm doing it for seed. And I've got 20 different grains growing. But yeah, and I've got a little hand sickle and I clean them. And then I've got a little grinder. I grind my grains fresh before I make my own bread. Mm -hmm. You can get seven loaves of bread out of 100 square feet. Oh, nice. You know, so yeah. And if you don't have grain to go out and hug in the morning, you're missing it. (laughs) That's all I can (laughs) say, man. Well, we have... We have a class that we're giving next Wednesday night. Right. Guts um, and grains. And so yeah. you, you should, everybody should come back for that on Wednesday night. Yeah. Right? And you'll get an email tomorrow. But if you're on our email list, you'll get an email for that. And then a week from Saturday, we have our Seed Up Saturday right. Q&A day. It's just going to be an awesome three-hour event where we're talking about different topics for four or five minutes and then answering questions about it. We're starting to roll them now. Q&A seed-a-thon, I think, is what we're calling it. So watch your email inbox for that as well. Do not tune in unless you want your mind changed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.